Hi, welcome to the Rejuvenate Podcast, and I'm your host, Chrissy Hawks, and I'm here with my co-host, Elwyn Robinson. And today we are talking peptides. What are they, what they can do for you, and which ones are worth trying. So Elwyn, tell me, peptides, why this topic? Why today? Why are we talking peptides? Great question, Chrissy. Well, it's something I'm very passionate about. It's something that's made a huge difference in my life uh, over the years, and especially over the last uh, couple of years. And it's something I see is becoming really trendy and really um, like a lot of people are starting to get into it and wanting to learn about it. And the resources to learn about it, I would say, are fairly minimal. And that's partly you know, because they're new and partly because it's previously until very recently, it's only been in the area of a few scientists and a few medical people. So it, you know, ha- there hasn't been much demand for it until recently. But yeah, there's very few resources about it. So if there was just as much information about it as a lot of the other topics we're covering, I probably would have done peptides later in the sequence. But because I feel that there's this real uh, need for some good, especially broad, holistic information, I, I, I find a lot of pieces here about this individual peptide or this individual um, outcome maybe. But I have yet to find like a really good broad overview on in uh, video form at least. And I'll recommend some uh, resources. I would say there's one good book on the subject that is a good broad overview that I would recommend. But yeah, there's very little about it. And it's important. Uh, I also want to say the reason that I've chose to cover it now is not because I sell them, nor because I recommend them. In fact, I will not recommend uh, anywhere for you to get them other than to go to a medical uh, professional. In some countries like the country I'm in, it's not possible to go to a medical professional to have them prescribed to you. And so the only way you can get hold of them is to buy them from sites that offer them for research purposes. I have been willing to gamble and try these for myself, but I would not recommend you to do so. And I certainly cannot recommend who you should go to. I'm open to doing that if one of these companies contacts me and gives me a tour of the company and shows me all the documentation they have and all the rest of it. But up until that point, I wouldn't feel comfortable uh, recommending anyone. So this is really uh, purely not self-promotion, but purely because you know we want to help. Um, this is straying into medical territory, so meaning that I'd say peptides are kind of on the border between supplements and medicine. Uh, they are uh, often things that are naturally occurring within the body, and so it's you know you could put them in the category of nutrition quite easily. But uh, and in fact, they are as we'll talk about you know things that are contained within common foods and stuff like that. So you could put them in the subject of nutrition. But on the other hand, because they have such powerful effects, they are they tend to be classed as medicine. And so uh, because they are classed as medicine, I won't be recommending you should take this much. I also won't even be re- saying you should take this. I'll, I'm just going to talk about my own personal experience taking them and maybe some, you know, my observation and feedback from the people around me. But I certainly will not be able to talk in this video in terms of you should do this, you shouldn't do that, because only a a medical professional has the right to uh, advise you in that way. So this is not, you know, this is what you should do. This is, why don't you ask your doctor about X? Or why don't you find a doctor who knows about X so that then they can (laughs) give this to you and uh, help you with this? Uh, Peptides are also key to feeling younger. You know, so we call the Rejuvenate podcast. We haven't really addressed why that's the case very much yet. Um, but you know, we are helping to combat premature aging. We're not claiming that we can help you to live forever, but we are saying, look, if you're feeling a lot older than you actually are, 
then there's a reason for that. And so actually one of the theories about what causes that premature aging is uh, a peptide deficiency, like your body can't make enough of its own peptide. So we'll get into that. Another theory um, as to what makes you feel uh, older than you actually are, which I would say is a more... Uh, substantiated and, and well-known and believed theory, of course, is that a, uh, a less than optimal amount of hormones can also make you feel like you're uh, not as young as you actually are. And so we've talked about hormones already, but peptides are a big part of that. And of course, as we talked about in the hormone ep- episode, uh, some peptides are also hormones. So there is some overlap. So in the hormone episode, I talked about a few peptides, which are very much in the hormone category. But with this, we're really going to talk about all the peptides and about all the different types because there's a whole there's eastern peptides and western peptides there's um, bioregulator peptides versus more supplemental peptides so we're going to talk about all the different types what they do why you might want to take them uh, and all the rest of it perfect thank you yes because i'm really new to this space so i'm really excited to travel down this road with you because I know you've talked a lot about peptides, but I don't really have a lot of background around it. So can you take me to the absolute beginning? You know, what are peptides? What are they in the body? All that kind of stuff. You know, give me a little bit of an education here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So in a nutshell, uh, what a peptide is, is very, very simply a chain of two or more amino acids up to a certain amount. Some people say, you know, above a chain of 40 amino acids in a row, it's then called a polypeptide. Some people do not bother with that categorization. In fact, some of the most popular peptides are uh, over 40, and they still refer to as just peptides rather than polypeptides. So what's the difference between a peptide and and, um, and a protein? A protein is just like a really, really, really long chain. So if you think of an amino acid as like a letter, and they're quite similar, like there's a you know, there are loads of amino acids, but in terms of the common ones, there is a similar amount of them as there are uh, letters in the alphabet. And so we could think of a peptide as kind of like a word, or maybe, depending if it's a long one, a sentence, right? Whereas a protein is more like a whole book, like it's got, (laughs) you know, loads and loads and loads of amino acids in a roll. And so that's one of the struggles of digestion, is that your stomach with its stomach acid has to break down that huge, you know, book worth of chain of amino acids into, um, you know, pretty much individual amino acids so that your body can actually assimilate them and use them properly. And often it struggles with that. And that's why um, people can end up with deficiency of protein. It's really deficiency in certain amino acids. So uh, anyway, why are they becoming so popular? Because they work. Um, and so when I say work, what do I mean? I just said there's like a protein, right? Well, here's the thing. So yes, they are in essence just the building blocks of protein, a, f- a few of them in a row in a specific sequence. But the key thing is, and the thing that makes them so magic, is that in that form, I just compared them to letters and words, and that was for a reason. Because they are kind of biochemical instructions. They tell what... Um, your, you know, your organs, your glands, all the way down to the cells, and even, yes, down to the very DNA, they give an instruction to it to do something. And so, you know, they can go all the way down to gene expression, especially the shorter peptides, the peptides that are just, just a few amino acids in a row. And there's still more investigation going on about this, more research. They're not quite sure if the longer peptides 
actually then break down into shorter peptides that then fit into the DNA. But these peptides that are the short ones that are literally just a few amino acids, two, three, four, five, something like that, they can literally, it's actually hard to fathom how small an amino acid is because I only kind of learned this a couple of years ago because if you buy, you know, some kind of protein powder, some, you know, you've maybe bought L-tyrosine before or lysine or one of these amino acids, you kind of think of them as maybe the size of a grain of sand or maybe the size of a powder, but they're actually so small they can fit inside your DNA. That's how small an amino acid actually is. So when we talk about a sequence of, you know, a few amino acids being a peptide, we're talking about something so incredibly tiny um, that, you know, only the most powerful microscopes are even able to measure it. And so this is, again, something that's partly why it's a fairly new technology compared to hormones, um, because the actual, you know, constituents are so small. And so we've only fairly recently, when I say recently, I mean the last few decades, got to a place with science and technology where we're actually able to synthesize any sequence of these different peptides. And so, um, and just as the case that most collections of letters together are not words and don't do anything, similarly, most sequences of amino acids, if you just took a random collection of amino acids and joined them together, would it do anything in the body? Probably not. Just like if I took a random collection of um, letters from the alphabet and put it together and said them to you, would it mean anything to you? Probably not, right? But if I take the correct combination of letters and said a word to you, that word can have a really profound impact on you, right? So that's the equivalent with peptides. It's okay, it's, you know, some people are like, it's just amino acids. It's like, well, but it's a specific combination of amino acids, which gives a specific biochemical instruction, which can be literally, you know, life transforming if it gives the right instruction to the right part of your body in the right time in the right way. That is really beautiful. I want to, uh, I've got a quick clarifying question or asking just in this space, because I know we've talked about essential amino acids before when we were looking at um, my test results. I know I needed extra supplementation, which has been very helpful to me. So how does how do peptides relate if somebody is uh, deficient or needing more supplementation in those essential amino acids? And then within the space of our bodies being able to make those peptides from, or do they come from the essential amino acids? Tell me a little bit about that process and, and how these peptides that we're discussing today, how they fit in with, with the, that part. Yeah, that's a good question. So this is still in the realm of, I'll give a little bit of speculation. I don't think this has been absolutely proven by research, but it's a reasonable assumption what I'm about to say. So first, just to explain that. So there are, you know, depending on who you listen to, between eight and 10 essential amino acids. What And there are some that are also conditionally essential, a couple that are conditionally essential, depending on various circumstances. So what that means is all the other amino acids, your body can make them, and they often make them out of the essential ones. So the idea, as long as you have enough of the essential ones, your body can make enough of all of them. That's the idea. So if you do not have enough of the essential ones, the idea would go that then you may have a lack of some of the amino acids. And as you said, Chrissy, that's exactly what showed up in your test results and shows up quite commonly in people, especially as they get older. I would say it's even mainstream science medicine, especially um, science and medicine, that especially as people get older, they're more likely to have a protein deficiency. Um, it's a bit more of a concern. But why does that matter? Well, protein is actually the building block of most of our body, right? Like some areas, like the brain, especially has a lot of fat. 
carbohydrate, although it's one of the main sources of fuel, that's not really what our body is made of. So most of our body is actually made out of protein. So it's the building block for everything. But what we're not sure about and what there needs to be more research on is if you don't have enough of those essential amino acids, if you don't have enough of those letters, that alphabet as it were, does that mean that your body cannot make enough words or instructions or peptides to then give to the cells, to give to the DNA, to keep them functioning optimally, I would say that's a reasonable assumption, as you say. So this could be one of the reasons why a protein deficiency, amino acid deficiency, uh, long-term can cause problems. It's partly because you don't have the building blocks for literally what your, a lot of what your body is made out of, but it's also absolutely because you don't have the building blocks for the instructions that keep every cell, every organ, every strand of DNA functioning optimally. Does that make sense? Does that answer yeah, the question? Yeah, no, that answered the question. Because, I mean, you know, in thinking about it, when they say that our bodies, um, you know, we've got a whole new set of skin, or I'm going to get this so wrong, but essentially our bodies are constantly remaking themselves over mm. a period or a process of years. So what I'm hearing you say is, yeah, then that's made from these from these amino acids, from these essential, from these peptides, from all, from all of that, correct? Yeah, made from the amino acids, uh, made from peptides to some degree, but yeah. uh, peptides we're really more concerned about as uh, a biochemical instructions rather than a building blocks per se. Yeah. Perfect. So thank you, because this is a very big topic <laughs> and very good. So um, going into this, so now that we know about these lovely peptides, you know, how do we uh, say, you know, it's on the new, you know, the new verge, the next steps, you know, if somebody decides to go down that route, what are the options? How do they, how would somebody take them? So this is again, where I say the kind of bordering between supplements and medicine. Some people say that the future of medicine, I, I want to talk about that a little bit at the end. I don't want to get distracted. I want to start off quite practical, but yeah. So we have oral, right? Which is consuming, eating, supplement, whatever. This is generally not very effective. There are exceptions to that, and I'll, I'll share them as we go through. I plan to you know, list all the major peptides that, again, I, I've experienced of. Can you explain why that's not effective? I'm sure you probably will, but yeah, if you could just... Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, so we talked about how one of the main jobs of the stomach, we talked about it a little bit here and in the digestive episode, that one of the main jobs of the stomach is to break down proteins into its constituent amino acids as small as possible uh, so that then they can be absorbed by the body. So the problem with taking peptides orally is that the stomach acid is actually going to break them down. Even if that's not the case, even let's say you're like, oh, I'm all right in that regard. I absorb protein poorly. I have very low stomach acid. Okay. But then even in that case, if you were to add a peptide to uh, a lot of other protein that you're consuming throughout the day, it's going to, uh, the effect is going to be less minimal because it's diluted with all the other things now there are a whole class of peptides which we're going to talk about where they don't have that perspective as strongly where they actually do actively promote and sell um uh, oral versions which is the bioregulator category but even there generally if you look at the feedback from people they say eh, they're not sure if this is effective they're not so sure if it's working whereas when people uh, use peptides using the other methods we'll talk about generally is much more effective. As I say, there are exceptions, but this is not something you have to believe me or any expert about. You can test as I have done, but basically uh, when you use them orally, it's like basically with a lot of supplements, you're like, is it doing anything? I don't know. <laughs> you know. Whereas uh, <laughs> when you use them with the other methods, you know, within a few minutes, hours, days, depending on their you know, mode of action, you're like, oh, wow, this is really doing something. So 
that, oh, wow, this is really doing something in response. I personally, uh, at least the short-term one, not like reflecting back a year later, but, you know, as I say, fairly instant, um, that's not something I personally have ever experienced taking them orally, probably for the reason I said, right? Because your body just breaks them down with a stomach acid. So the other types are uh, nasal, intranasal. So that's getting a little like a Sudafed bottle, not that I recommend Sudafed, <laughs> spraying it up your nose. Um, why does that work? Because, uh, you know, those mucous membranes, um, uh, it can go straight into the bloodstream. And interestingly, like intranasal, uh, because there are, you know, mucous membranes in other places, but intranasal means it can get straight into the brain because otherwise there's this blood-brain barrier. So there are certain things that we'll talk about, like uh, Epitalon or, or C-Max, where you especially want them to have an effect on the brain. And so in that case, there's an argument to be made that it's actually more effective to do it that way than the other way. Although the one I'll list at the end is usually the most effective way. Uh, then there's transdermal. So this is through the skin. Now, again, with the bioregulators, there, there is a, um, the, the company, there's only one really main company that produces them and, and they do have a whole range now where all of them are transdermal. So they claim that all of them can work transdermally. But uh, for the other type, the Western type of peptides, the supplemental peptides, very few of them um, are used transdermally. There is a few, but out of the ones that are really popular, the only one is GHK. Uh, CU, GHK copper. So that one seems to work well for reasons we'll talk about, but again, not very good. So that leaves us with the last option, which is not very popular with anyone, <laughs> but um, it, is, <laughs> it does seem to be the thing that actually works, and that's through injection. And so, as I said, some people are terrified of needles. This is a major thing that will stop them trying it, and that's absolutely fine. It's not like everyone has to do this. And as I said, um, you know, in many cases, there are other ways. The intranasal works quite well in quite a few cases. But some of the most popular peptides, like the ones, the growth hormone ones and the immune system supporting ones, only really work significantly well um, if they use via injection. And so, um, and this is, yeah. And, and so there's, so that's that's a choice, whether that's something you want to go into. Before I got into peptides, I'd never injected anything in my whole life. Um, but I still have never injected anything other than that. Um, it's not the difficult kind of injection. It's uh, you, if you choose to use it, then you you know your doctor will guide you to use uh, uh, insulin needles. And so these are extremely thin, extremely uh, you know nothing like the ones that they put in your veins if they're trying to draw blood. Nothing like that. Just incredibly thin needles, and and you can basically um, usually they'll they tell you to use them subcutaneously. So subcutaneously means just underneath the skin where there is fat. So usually they do it in the belly, just like you would have insulin. And remember insulin, as we talked about in the hormone episode, is simply a peptide, right? That is the peptide that allows blood to be taken out of your, um, sorry, that allows sugar to be taken out of your bloodstream before it builds up to dangerous level and put into the cells and the muscles uh, where your body actually needs it. So um, yeah, Unsurprisingly, that you know, insulin is the most popular and um, sold peptide in the world. Has been you know for a long time. So that method of delivery that works for insulin works for really almost all the peptides, and arguably it works better. If nothing else, it's better value for money. 
So in the case of some peptides where intranasal does work, the the calculation is usually like it will be maybe half as effective if you use it intranasally. So obviously, if you're scared of needles or you don't want to use needles for whatever reason, which is totally understandable, then um, you can, in many cases, do it intranasally, but you, it's, you're going to get half as much for your money. So that's that's always going to be an issue as well. Um, so yeah, just remind me to, uh, as we go through them, if it's ever not clear, like what versions are available and what tend to work best. Again, I'm not going to recommend anything that's not my place. I'll only share my experience. No, that's really good. It's nice to know that there are options because, yeah, not everybody is, um, you know, fine with a little self-injection. But I do, you, brought, you brought, mentioned one point, which I know sometimes for me I find a little confusing, whether something's a peptide, whether something's a hormone, what it is, but sometimes they can be both. So could you just kind of clarify that that bit a little for me? <laughs> sure. I tried to clarify this a bit in the hormone thing, but it is tricky. So basically, a peptide is a chain of amino acids, like we talked about earlier. So a hormone is something that has a, a, a biological impact, uh, well, you know, often on the whole body, but specifically related to uh, the glands and is uh, always produced in a gland. So generally, I mean, to simplify, there's two categories of hormones. So there's steroid hormones, and they're the ones that are built basically out of cholesterol. And that is mainly the adrenal hormones like uh, cortisol and aldosterone and some of the others, uh, DHEA. And then there is um, testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, and all the rest of it. They're built out of um, uh, cholesterol. But the rest of the hormones generally are actually built out of amino acids. Some of them, like thyroxine that we talked about before, are built out, are also not peptides. They're, uh, thyroxine is a combination of uh, an amino acid, one amino acid, tyrosine, with a bunch of iodine attached to it, three or four iodine molecules attached to it. So maybe I'm getting like overcomplicated. <laughs> to simplify, basically, <laughs> the fundamental building block of a hormone is going to either be um, a cholesterol or it's going to be an amino acid. And even if it's an amino acid, it is sometimes a peptide and sometimes not, depending. That was really good. Thank you. <laughs> I know. It's a simple you, version. It's like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's just, there's so much information here in this. And, and yeah, it's just getting clear. And the more I hear it and the more we are able to share it, then there's just more clarity, which is exactly what we're wanting to provide is the information so people have the, the best knowledge to move forth to ask the questions and, you know, have as as much um, in their arsenal of understanding as possible. You did mention, um, going back into the peptides, you did mention bioregulators. What are the types of peptides that are out there that are available? Okay, that's a good question. And this is my classification. Well, the way that I'm going to classify them is my classification, but it's generally agreed upon by most people. It's just I'm, the terminology that I'm about to use. So bioregulator is uh, a type of peptide coming from Russia, basically. So normally when we talk about Eastern, we're talking about you know places like China and uh, Korea and stuff like that, but they actually have a Russian origin. And so I thought it was interesting, like the biggest book that I've personally seen that talks about peptides is um, Tony Robbins' new book, big as in, I'm assuming that it's had millions of uh, readers. And when he introduces peptides, he basically talks about the person who discovered bioregulators and like their whole journey. And then when he actually lists the peptides he only lists the other type and, and there's like not an overlap so and i'm sure that's not his fault i, I imagine that some editor's gone in there and gone oh that's unnecessary information and, uh, and uh, simplified it all but i just wanted to clear this up so um 
the original, and I, I'll simplify this because I know we've got tons to cover, but you know, the original discovery of uh, peptides actually comes from a guy called Pavlov, who a lot of people have heard of because he's the guy with the dogs, right? He's the guy who <laughs> um, discovered this thing about conditioning, where if you uh, ring a bell every time you feed dogs, eventually you just ring the bell and they'll start salivating. So, so that guy, um, but he also uh, discovered the first peptides. And so uh, now his work has been taken over by a guy called Dr. Cavinson. Cavinson is still around, um, pretty old by now, but still active, still working, always a good sign. Um, he's rumored to uh, be the personal physician of uh, Vladimir Putin. Don't know if that's true, but there's certainly photographs of them together. Um, he has an institute in Russia. A lot of people fly there from around the world to get, um, you know, various different kinds of treatments. They claim to be able to reverse all kinds of incurable diseases. I personally have had no experience of going there, of having any communication with them. I can't speak to that, whether there's any validity to that or not, but just, you know, just to give you the background. So where does their system come from? So the story is this. So obviously Russia during the uh, middle of the uh, the last century was communist, right? And so they had a very different system from ours. Better? Probably not, but, but different, right? And there were some advantages to their system over ours. Um, and one of them is that, you know, they weren't purely profit motivated. So goes the story, right? So Obviously, there was this Cold War. There was this uh, massive conflict with uh, Western powers. And so a lot of that was based on this nuclear power, right? And so they would have these nuclear submarines. Um, they, uh, you know, again, the story goes, I don't want to be accused of impugning anyone, but <laughs> they had less safety concerns, let's just say, than or less safety protocols than the Western powers. And so, you know, the, uh, the sailors would be in these submarines with this nuclear material for a long time. Maybe it wasn't as shielded. It wasn't in Western submarines, whatever. And so a lot of these sailors, when they got back after these um, stints of, you know, months in this nuclear submarine, they would have massively prematurely aged, right? They were like really the worst for wear. Not outright radiation damage, but like really, really uh, premature aged nonetheless. And so... Again, because it's a communist country, they were like, uh, throw as much money as this, throw money, but especially people at this as possible, work out a solution. How can we keep these soldiers young? How can we stop them being prematurely aged? And how can we also reverse the premature aging? So that's where the inception of this came from. And the direction that these Russian scientists went down is uh, ended up being peptides. So they... And, and the glands as well, which we talked about the importance of the glands in the hormone episode. So what they've noticed especially is that a key part of this premature aging was the withering away or calcification of the pineal and the thymus. And so they identified those particular glands, pineal being, again, in the, near the center of the brain, the thing that creates melatonin, um, serotonin, also DMT, maybe some other stuff going on with it, but basically regulates the sleep-wake cycle. That's the, the mainstream science around it. And then the thymus, which is one of the most important parts of the immune system, if not the most important part. And it was well known anyway that um, you know the thymus is like nice and strong and healthy and vigorous in young people. And then it kind of really goes downhill, especially around 30-ish, uh, if not way before. 
But so that was already known. And then the detail of pineal, it slowly uh, calcifies. So this is an issue. But they targeted that. And so they came up with this theory that uh, perhaps it is a lack of, um, well, in fact, no, let me go backwards. So they started off with this idea, which goes back thousands of years, probably, you know, maybe even hundreds of thousands of years to, you know, maybe shamanic cultures, uh, stuff like that, of if there is a problem with an organal gland, just eat more of the organal gland for an animal, right? And so they be, and this is not such a crazy idea. Uh, I think we touched on it in the hormone episode, and we will certainly more when we do get into thyroid, that the realization that uh, the thyroid is so important in the Western world came from uh, the end of the 1800s, where... Uh, again, medical doctors, research scientists, you know, had this epidemic of people with thyroid symptoms and they just started feeding them thyroid hormone. Apparently, literally, you know, to begin with, it wasn't capsule. They would get people to put like raw thyroid hormone in a sandwich, <laughs> you know, go figure. And That's apparently a, people a didn't love doing that on a daily pate, basis. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So apparently this was not super popular taste wise. Uh, there wasn't, you know, huge compliance, which is why they're not doing it in capsules. But yeah, so basically, so this is not such a crazy idea, right? So, you know, in the West, we did that with a thyroid. In, in, in Russia, they noticed that these glands especially were suffering, flagging. Let's give them some pineal gland. Let's give them some um, thymus gland, right? And then, they, and then they noticed that that had some degree of effectiveness. And then they started looking into, huh, what is it in the pineal or the thymus? gland what is it that you know manages to make it through as we said the digestive tract that's not particularly easy always what is it that actually uh, makes these people feel somewhat better and so they narrowed it down eventually to peptides and so that's one of the classes of peptides that still exist in the bioregulator world is uh, i think they're called cytomaxes so these are um refined processed, like extracted from animal glands still so that's one type of bioregulator peptide. They also now have another type of, again, as I said, the technology to synthesize any sequence of amino acids hasn't existed for that long, only for a few decades and at a reasonable cost, really not very long at all. Um, but these days they also have synthetic um, cytogens. I think that's the right way around, peptides. Um, so from that basic concept, they so a couple of things came. First of all, this idea that for any organ, gland, or system in the body, that if it has enough of the peptides that keep it healthy, that you can keep it youthful and healthy, and that you can even regenerate youth and health should it have declined if you give it enough of the bioregulator peptide, which it is lacking. The second, so, so yeah, the second concept being, um, that of the bioregulator itself. So if you think about insulin as a classic example of the Western type of peptide, insulin says your gland, your pancreas, is not creating enough of the thing that it needs to keep you alive, to clear the sugar out of the bloodstream and, and put it where it needs to go. So therefore, we will give you insulin, the thing that you are not uh, making enough of. Um, the benefit of that to the person who is has that issue is, of course, immediate, right? It's literally life-saving. It's fantastic. But this Eastern system said, well, rather than giving you the thing that your gland isn't making enough of, in this case, a peptide, why don't we give you the peptide 
which will help your gland to repair itself until it can make enough of its own. And sure enough, like in the case of insulin, that there is a bioregulated peptide called uh, pancreatin, which claims to do exactly that. Now I say claims, we'll get into a little bit more about how reliable this is, but um, as I said, you know, Charlie Robbins talked about it in his book, um, this, this type of peptide. So I wanted it, I, I didn't want to leave it out of a discussion about peptides. These are definitely less well-known than the other type, which I'll spend the majority of the episode talking about, but I wanted to cover these first. Um, so their presupposition is every system in the body, and they've got something for everything. Um, you know, they've got um, Christogen and Velon for the immune system, uh, Thymulin for the thymus, uh, uh, Penelon and Epitalon for the pineal. Epitalon is one of the only ones that has made it over to um, uh, the West in, in, in any significant quantity because there is so much research to show that it helps to regenerate the pineal that it's convincing enough that a lot of the uh, you know, Western scientific uh, um, establishment has uh, taken it on. Uh, there's cardiogen for the heart, thyroidogen for the thyroids, ovigen and livogen for the liver, conlutin and bronchogen for the lungs, or technically bronchogen is for the bronchioles, um, vesolute for the veins, arteries, cartilax for the joints, prostomax for the prostate, testogen for the testicles. And believe it or not, that's not a complete list. That's just uh, uh, what I wrote down, again, that I've experienced with. But yeah, there's like a, a huge list. So basically, every, they got one for the muscles as well. Any system, organ, gland of the body, for the eyes, they claim to be, there's a lot of people who go um, again to that clinic, uh, if they have eye problems specifically, they claim to be able to regenerate the eyes and eyesight better than anyone else. And there's a lot of people who believe them and a lot of people who say that, you know, it helps to restore their sight, which is really interesting. Um, of course, you know, going back to that, initial principle of that you know our ancestral culture because now with the the you know, paleo movement ancestral movement there's a lot more focus on this the importance of eating liver and it's so it's like why is it a good idea to eat these organs and glands if it is and so they may well have provided an answer for that now the challenge of course is if you just eat now in the case of thyroids like if you eat a live thyroid like we talked about the thing that's going to make you feel better is probably that it contains the actual hormone, the T3 and the T4, if that's what you're lacking, right? But what they would say is even if you remove the T3 and T4, and generally any thyroid glandular that you buy in the US, it should have had it removed because it's classed as a drug. So even if you remove that, people have still found, and this is not like totally mainstream, but a lot of um, you know naturopathic doctors, functional medicine doctors, all the rest have found if people take a thyroid glandular over a long time, it helps their thyroid to work better, but they don't really know why. So this is a possible explanation as to why. Why does eating loads of liver help your liver work better? Why does eating loads of um, uh, thyroid help your thyroid work better? Because it gives you the peptides. Now, notice I just said loads there, and this is because, so first of all, it contains a lot of other stuff, right? So this is what the supplements that Dr. Cavinson's company, I don't know if it's company or foundation, whatever, but that group that they produce, uh, as I said, they produce oral supplements, sublingual, um, transdermal. Critics of that do say that most of the research that shows how miraculous the results of these bioregulator peptides are, are um, done using injectables, or at least some. Often they'll give you like, you know, a combination, injectables every day, um, 
uh, plus ingestibles, like like a combination. But there's not a huge amount of research in bioregulators that shows miraculous results without an injectable component. So that's part of the criticism that they're selling these oral supplements. They're not cheap. That's the other thing. Are they anywhere near as expensive as you know getting any of these diseases, especially if you don't have free healthcare? You know, certainly not. It's all relative. Um, but compared to supplements. Um, in most countries in the world, they're not cheap. Compared to drugs or medical treatment, they are, of course, cheap. <laughs> so it depends on how you look at it. And the other thing is, because they're lumped in the peptide category, they're not as immediate. If they, let's assume that they work at all, and there is plenty of research which indicate that they do, some of them do work to some degree, maybe a lot, you know, maybe a miraculous degree, um, but it's not overnight. Like, so there are studies that show that, especially the combination of epitalon, and uh, thymolin, which is the pineal and the uh, thymus bioregulators, has like massively reduced the incidence of death among like the 60 to 80 age range, like significantly. So very compelling evidence that it would significantly increase lifespan. Um, but that's, uh, you know, you would have to keep, and it's not something you have to take every day. A lot of the time they do courses like 20 days off, sorry, 20 days on, every six months, something like that. But still, you have to take them for years and years and years to then get those kind of results. That's often the case. So yeah, I was I was gonna ask, you know, how do, if somebody was taking these, how would they know that they're actually working? What would would results be quite instant? Would it be, you know, long term? Yeah. No. So I'm glad you're, you're touching on these <laughs> subjects. Not instant because because of the very nature that they claim they work, right? The way that they claim they work is to rejuvenate so again, very important with the uh, name of this podcast, is to rejuvenate an organ, gland, or system like the muscular system, the, the, the cardiovascular system, whatever, right? So these things cannot get rejuvenated overnight. So this is part of the, the issue, is that you will feel better generally with a Western peptide uh, because that's giving you the thing that your organ and gland is not producing enough of or not getting enough of or both. So you're definitely more likely to feel significantly better with that but when you take a bioregulator, yeah, it's always going to take time. Um, so I have quite enthusiastically used a bunch of them, the um, cytogens. But I will say, like, the only area that I have an issue with that's bad enough to be classified as medical is the thyroid. Um, and after taking six months of bioregulator, it didn't have a significant impact. But then again... That's one of the few bioregulators that there's not an injectable version available. The only type of that available is the uh, oral supplement form. And so because of that, I don't know if that's, well, actually also transdermal, I think, but the injectable isn't available. So it, I don't know if that's quite a fair test. But again, it does indicate to me that if you have a major medical issue that only taking the other bioregulator peptides without the injectable form... And again, I wish this weren't the case. You know, this is not something that I relish um, recommending because I know it will make me unpopular. People don't want to hear this, but it's just reality, unfortunately, that if you want the really shocking, oh my God, you know, miraculous kind of effects that usually you have to, you know, get it into the bloodstream because the digestive system does just break it down. There are exceptions to that, which we'll talk about. Wonderful, Ellen. Yeah, it's a whole new world opening up. Um, yes, no, it's fantastic. Thank you. So what, uh, you discussed the bioregulator peptides, excuse me. <laughs> what are some of the supplemental peptides that are out there? 
Yeah. So this is my word, supplemental peptides. I think some in the, the um, you know, the peptide world might disagree with this because they don't want peptides lumped as supplements. They see it more as medicine. And that makes sense, right? I mean, generally, if you associate like the difference between a supplement and a drug, and I asked you what works better, what has a more immediate effect, pretty much everyone would say a drug, right? Or a medication. So they don't want a class in that. So I'm calling it supplemental, not to lump it in with supplements like omega-3 or whatever, but because of that distinction that I just made with the versus the bioregulators. So the idea of a bioregulator is rejuvenate the organ gland system, whereas the idea with the quote-unquote Western peptides, so what I call supplemental peptides, is that it's giving your body more of what it's not making enough of. Or, and that's a lot of the case, or they're actually artificial peptides. So something that your body never makes, but uh, or it's a modified version of something that your body makes, but which has a specific effect. So some of the most pop- popular peptides, in fact, are in that category. They are not ones that naturally already exist in your body, but they are obviously um, highly effective because they act on your body in a certain way. We're going to take a quick break to share with you one of our amazing sponsors, Genetic Insights. What makes Genetic Insights uniquely valuable is that they test over 83 million different variants, which guarantees a 99.7% accuracy on all of their DNA reports. With over 100 reports available, you get comprehensive insights into what your DNA is telling you about how to optimize your health today and in the future. I found reviewing my results to be incredibly accurate and applying some of the recommendations which are personalized to your individual DNA to be extremely helpful for me and my family. I also loved how easy it was to upload my raw DNA data that I already had from previously using Ancestry.com because Genetic Insights supports uploading raw data from all major platforms. To get your health reports, go to geneticinsights.co and get 20% off today by using coupon code REJUVENATE. Remember that supporting our sponsors supports our podcast, which allows us to keep sharing this important information with you free of cost. So go get your Genetic Insights health reports by going to geneticinsights.co and use coupon code REJUVENATE for 20% off today. Perfect. Thank you so much. And then um, I, you're talking about, you know, that they're not as nece- necessarily what the body makes. You know, how are these peptides, these supplemental peptides, your your word that you're using, how are they made? How does our body take it in? I mean, does it matter that it's whether it's something that our body makes or it doesn't make? I mean, what's the difference within that sphere of this of this whole peptide, of all these peptides? Yeah, that's a good question. So that's, you know, again, not settled science. This is a lot of the thing about peptides. Um, It's generally considered that the peptides that are natural and pre-existing in your body are safer, right? And this is the other thing that I would say about Western peptides. So the good thing about all the bioregulator peptides is that they all have, it seems anyway, unless all the research around it is fundamentally false and you don't want to believe it because of where it's coming from. Um, But it seems that they are all extremely safe. Uh, And of course, especially the oral version, right? And now, of course, anything can be unsafe if it's improperly made. I'm not talking about that or if it's from an unreliable source, but I'm saying properly made from a reliable source, all the bioregulator peptides seem to be extremely safe, probably for that reason. Oh, the other thing I didn't mention about the bioregulator peptides is with very little exceptions, they're all either 
a chain of two and usually three or four amino acids. So they're all very small as well. And so they all have that capacity to slot right into the DNA that we talked about earlier. Um, yeah, so the Western ones tend to be longer. They tend to be a lot longer. Um, and so, as I said, there's still speculation about whether the body then breaks the long peptides into shorter fragments to then still be a similar size to the bioregulators and, and have an impact. So there is certainly evidence for that. Like there's a few that I'll talk about on my list here where there are small fractions of a longer chain that have that are sold separately and have their own specific uses. So there is definitely indications of that. Um, but yeah, so that is definitely an issue with the supplemental peptides is, and this is pretty much always universally the case of any substance that the more noticeable and dramatic the effect, the more dangerous it potentially is as well, especially if not used correctly, right? If you use too much, if you use it at the wrong time, the wrong way and all the rest of it. And so again, everything I said about medical supervision, it's debatable if that applies to the bioregulators especially the oral ones right you could probably actually just go on the internet as long as you find a trustworthy source you could probably self-administer they are classed as supplements is my understanding in western countries but the western supplemental peptides are definitely a case of you accidentally take 10 times as much or something it could be a major problem mm. right so this is something where you want to be very careful to have professional supervision and all the rest of it um so yeah, so that's a, a, a big issue. So they're becoming hugely popular. I would say the first thing I found out about, and I think this is still the most popular kind of use for them, is in the world of recovery with sports uh, because they seem to have a dramatic effect with that. So I think, you know, I heard Joe Rogan and a bunch of those kind of people talk about it, how maybe an injury that might take six to eight weeks to heal um, is better in like one to two weeks, you know? Now, in the sports world, you know, um, athlete, athletic world, peak performance world, whatever you want to call it, that's bodybuilding world as well. That's almost unheard of, right? That's, that's shocking. And for those people to whom that's their life, that's their livelihood, that's their reason for living, you know, in some cases, uh, and then, you know, they can't do it for two months because of this injury, if they can cut that down, that's a huge thing, right? So this is one of the ways it's come into the public consciousness is because, you know, a lot of people look up to sports stars and, and athletes and stuff like that. And so some of those, a few of those uh, are talking about it and popularizing it. The other thing, which is not as, um, there are not as many people talking about, hey, I'm using it, but which is still gaining, a, I think, a lot of traction is uh, like celebrities, models, people who need to look good, people who need to look young. They want to reduce their body fat. They want to make their skin look younger. Um, whatever it might be. And so like, that's the other big contingent of people that are using it, I would say. And then probably third um, category where it's gaining traction is among the alternative medicine world, right? So definitely some medical doctors, in fact, most of the people who I've learned about this uh, category of um, health from are medical doctors. But I would say from what I've seen, it's more popular among you know, naturopathic doctors, functional medicine doctors, nutritionists, those kind of people. Um, and, you know, to, to address all kinds of issues that nothing else addresses. Mm. So I first came across yeah. it actually in the sphere of, uh, sphere of mold toxicity, which like some heavy metal toxicity. So I had lead toxicity, which is very, very difficult to deal with. Um, and I had 
uh, mold toxicity, which is also pretty difficult to deal with, especially if you have a certain genetic variant. And uh, and that's you know one of the things in our genetic insights test. We I don't think at the time of recording this we offer that, but it's coming. Um, so whether you have that issue, in fact, with both of those things, with lead, with different heavy metals, or with mold. So anyway. Always a problem. Mold is always toxic. Heavy metals are always toxic, but some people especially struggle to deal with them. And um, and so that's you know two examples. And then it's huge as well in the digestive health space. There are so many people who have SIBO, CFO, these kind of issues, allergies. And so with all those things, a lot of practitioners, I think, and I can relate to this, got to a point where they feel like I've literally tried everything in my repertoire and it's not working, you know, or it's not working enough. Or and a lot of the challenges when people have issues with heavy metals, when they have issues with Lyme disease as well, when they have issues with moles, is that uh, they react to almost everything negatively. The immune system is so one of the um, is so overstimulated in, in a bad way. One of the uh, terms for mold toxicity, I think, is called um, is it, uh, is it something like chronic immune activation syndrome, something like that. Uh, chronic immune reactivity syndrome, something like that. So um, the other category I'd say is, and this is really where I came into it, for, um, this is the perspective that made me interested in it initially, is how to calm down the immune system so it doesn't react to everything that you try and give the person to help them, right? Because if you have a certain situation, they react to almost every supplement, every herb, almost every food, you know, like it's crazy, you know. Um, and so it's really difficult to help that person. If you're a natural pastor, if you're a herbalist, if you're a nutritionist, you're trying to give them all the, the nutrients, the herbs, whatever that you're used to giving them, they react to everything. Like, what the hell do I do? Yeah. So I think that's one of the other f- places where peptides have become popular as well is through that ability to calm down inflammation. Um, the same healing thing, which helps athletes give those stories about, you know, it used to take me eight weeks to recover. Now it's only two, that kind of thing. That immense capacity to heal and regenerate and rejuvenate, um, say, a joint that's been damaged, also seems to work very well with the lining of the gut. You know, a lot of people have leaky gut. They have, um, uh, you know, irritable bowel syndrome, maybe that kind of thing, right, where the gut is like chronically inflamed. So there's a lot of evidence and a lot of people who found it to be really effective for that as well so those are some of the those are the three big ones that i see as to why people get interested in peptides i've got a but quick question fa- got a quick question sure. going into that space and you know maybe you've already talked about it or answered it a little bit but when somebody is in that space of, of extreme um immune system agitation where it's just constantly like you're saying they're constantly reacting and then they do take some of these peptides uh, how do the peptides act upon the body to help get the person out of that faster? What's the mechanism? What's the action? <laughs> well, that's a good question. And it actually reminds me, as a side note, I was going to say this earlier and then I, uh, I didn't get to it. So you talk, going back to answering your natural versus unnatural peptides question first, those people who are quite reactive to things, so if you are the kind of person that tends to react to a lot of stuff, herbs, foods, allergens in the air, whatever, you're more likely, and I would say much more likely, to react negatively to the unnatural peptides than the natural peptides. So all the bioregulators should be fine. They're all naturally occurring. But for instance, taking some of the immune system peptides, and this is, you know, from personal experience, thymosin alpha-1, thymosin beta-4, they're some of the main 
immune system peptides that your thymus should be making itself in you know in optimal quantities but usually isn't especially once you get older uh zero reaction to that but if you take say some of the growth hormone stimulating peptides and then growth hormone stimulating hormone as well like ipamorelin tesamorelin cjc 1295 these kind of things people often have a reaction to it now the reaction is not necessarily dramatic it's usually just like a bit of irritation and inflammation where around the injection site because those have to be injected but again what did i just say inflammation right so what is inflammation i always want to hammer this home into people it's not this nebulous thing that just causes disease it is an immune system reaction inflammation is an immune system reaction so now go back to your latest question chrissy um how does it help to um mitigate and reduce an immune system reaction it does that by so when you have an optimal we need to get into this more we need to do a whole episode on the immune system <laughs> but again in a nutshell there's a lot of constituents of your immune system which are pro-inflammatory and then there's a bunch that are also regulatory and so we could call that anti-inflammatory so they kind of stop the so pro-inflammatory ones um uh, and also pro-oxidative parts of the immune system have a job to do that's super important of dealing with pathogenic organisms or in fact any foreign invaders even just you know inert substances like they're there to, to deal with that so the other thing to understand is that you have the innate immune system and then you have the adaptive immune system so the innate immune system is this initial response to an invader and it's very generalized it's like we have no idea what this is this is also what happens if you burn yourself, if you cut yourself, if if you know you breathe in some kind of um, pathogen in you know an amount that alarms the uh, or you you eat it, whatever. Your body goes into this emergency reaction mode, which we refer to as inflammation. This is like the cytokine thing that you know you may have heard about in the news and stuff like that. And then the idea is, after a while, usually, especially about seven, ten, fourteen days, something like that the uh, adaptive immune system kicks in. And so the idea of the adaptive is by then your immune system has worked out what's going on and it's got an antibody to deal with it. Now that's specifically in the case of uh, obviously a, a, a new pathogen. If it's a pathogen it's encountered before, the adaptive immune system should already be ready and it can deal with it much quickly. Uh, um, if it is you know, an invader, you know, because if you cut yourself with a knife, that's an invader, but it's not necessarily a pathogen, right? If you burn yourself, that's an invasion of, of, of heat, but it's not necessarily a pathogen. And so, but still, there's that initial uh, uh, inflammatory response. And then there's the, okay, we know what's going on. We'll deal with it specifically response. And so the thing that calms down that inflammatory response is the regulatory parts of the immune system. Now, it seems to be the case for reasons that aren't entirely clear, still uh, although there's plenty of theories about it that when the immune system is not functioning correctly when the thymus is you know withered away compared to when it was when we were young when the bone marrow is not functioning optimally when the spleen isn't functioning optimally those are the main you know uh, parts of the immune system then the regulatory parts of the immune system are underactive and the inflammatory parts are overactive and so by using some of the immune system peptides, it basically gives the signal to the relevant systems to bring those back into balance. That's the simple way of putting it. The reality is the immune system is incredibly complicated. So if you're an immunologist, I know that was such an oversimplification. 
that you might actually object to it. But that's basically it, right? Taking the uh, peptides that your body doesn't have enough of, the whole immune system starts working better. As a consequence of the whole immune system working better, there is a, a correct balance between inflammatory and regulatory, okay. and therefore it will stop the chronic inflammation. Not necessarily the immediate inflammation, because the immediate inflammation is a good thing. The inflammation we get when we stub our toe, when we burn ourselves, or when we, um, you know, first breathe in a new virus or whatever is necessary and healthy and right, but it shouldn't go on and on and on. And that's the issue where people have chronic inflammation. You know, we, we talked about gut issues. That was the thing that prompted the question. You know, that is something that goes on for years and decades. And so that's a problem. That's, um, that's something where the immune system isn't working correctly. Even if the cause of the chronic inflammation, say in the digestive system, is in fact chronic infection, which is more recently, the last decade, speculated, oh, actually, maybe it's quite often SIBO or CIFO. Um, even in that case, it's like that um, um, elevated inflammatory response isn't really helping. What we need is an, adapt, you know, an adequate level of adaptive immune response to go, okay, what is this organism? How do we deal with it? And so the chronic inflammation just gets in the way. It doesn't help. Um, it's a bit like you know, within the human personality, like the, the uh, emotion of anger, which, you know, Eastern medicine would actually correlate it with. If you take someone who's incapable of anger, they're much more likely to be bullied, picked on, you know, uh, taken advantage of and all the rest of it. But if you take someone who's basically angry all the time, <laughs> like they often create more problems for themselves than they prevent, right? And so this is a similar idea with the inflammation. It's, it, it's healthy, it's a healthy response in certain situations, just like anger is. But if you're angry all the time, it's a problem. If you're inflamed all the time, it's a problem. So yeah, to basically, um, even though they're not called bioregulators, all these uh, uh, immune system peptides, they still go in and kind of regulate the immune system and get it back on track to answer your question. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so going into that, do you have a list like you had before with the other ones, a list of these other uh, peptides that people would potentially be looking at or looking up to gain more knowledge about? Yeah. And I'll, um, I'll categorize them by like why you might want to take them, even though a lot of them do a lot of things, right? The, this Now, they've tried to make peptides more drug-like in the sense of that's one of the things about a drug is that they try and make it only have one, if they can, only one mechanism of action, only one action, so they can really isolate it because it's better for you know doing double-blind placebo trials and the rest of it. But of course, peptides, especially the long ones that actually exist in your body, they do loads and loads of different things. So their application is actually extremely broad. Um, we already kind of talked about the immune system. I'll just give another example. So when I looked into the fact that I had lead toxicity, which is the other major issue I had that, you know, was it was a, in a category is bad enough it would be classed as medical um the basic bottom line of it was there's nothing we can do if it was slightly higher then we put you on edta which is this very harsh and not great form of chelation therapy where it basically like binds to the lead and transports it out but the whole problem is that your body can't differentiate between lead and other important minerals like calcium so edta also flushes calcium, magnesium, and zinc, and a bunch of other minerals that you actually need out of your system. So it's not great. So then I looked into it, and I looked into it, and I looked into it, and I just, I'm the kind of person who can never accept that there's nothing you can do. And eventually, so I wasn't looking for peptides, I was just looking at what can you do to more quickly and safely get lead out of your body? Because the prevailing wisdom is like, 
There's nothing you can do. Now, I say prevailing wisdom, I mean scientifically. I know people say infrared saunas work and cilantro and all the rest of it, but there's not really science behind that. So I wanted to get some real science behind it. And it turned out that the, one of the peptides, uh, that there is a peptide that your body um, will bind to lead to transport it out of the body as safely as possible. And it's Phymosin Beta 4. It's the same immune system peptide. So... So just to talk about the immune system once quickly before we go to the next topic. So there's Phymosin Alpha 1, Phymosin Beta 4, and Phymalin. Um, they all do a million things, but generally, why would you go for one or the other? Phymosin Alpha 1 is the one that's usually used, especially to try and deal with an illness, although it's always better to not wait until you get ill. But it's the one you would do if you're going to do any. And, and really to prevent it, you know? So if you knew you were going into a situation... Let's say, you know, you go into your family and you know that they've got colds. That's the one you would take before you go there, you know, and every day, like as a preventative measure. So that's really, even though it does everything and it absolutely can and does increase the regulation and reduce inflammation, it's mainly to support the adaptive immune system to be more effective at dealing with pathogens, I would say. That's more what it's used for. Phymus in beta 4 tends to be used more for... Um, getting the immune system back into balance and phymalin 2. now phymosin beta 4 is also often used for healing and repair and recovery for the same reason we just talked about i won't go into it again because often the issue with um injuries is that that inflammation sticks around way longer than you want it to so that's one of the primary mechanisms whereby people recover so quickly is it just gets rid of the inflammation so quickly and then there is a specific fraction of phymosin beta 4 referred to as TB500, usually, although the technical name is TB4 fragment 17 to 23. <laughs> Basically, you got this long list of amino acids, and it's like the middle bit, like a bit from the middle. It's often referred to as TB500. Now, confusingly, sometimes TB4, which is the long chain, is sold as TB500. So it's totally confusing. So this is not so much an issue if you deal with a doctor which is probably what's recommended, right? And if you can, it is what's recommended. But uh, if you are looking for it yourself, just like be aware of that distinction. And so this, this TB500, this bit from the middle of the TB4 is the specific bit that seems to be good for specifically lowering inflammation. And that's why that fragment is often taken out of it and used specifically. And there is also, even though the cost of each is similar, if all you want is to reduce inflammation, there's the idea of, well, because it's so much smaller fragment, you get a lot more per one milligram than you would of the whole molecule. So if you're specifically trying to go for reducing inflammation, then you would go for TB500 or TB4 frag 70 to 23 if you want to be specific. The other thing that's really huge for recovery is BPC157. And this is a really interesting one. This is one of the only ones that it would make sense to take orally, even though most people actually still don't. Uh, because it's, it was actually discovered in the stomach. So it's, um, it's something that is produced in your stomach, and it's basically this compound that helps with healing and regeneration more than anything else. So whereas the TB500 part, the typical formula is to reduce inflammation, the BPC157 is to literally support the body in healing and repair. And so it kind of is interesting that it's actually made in the stomach. So if you think about it, it, every time the stomach empties out into the uh, 
intestines via duodenum, the whole process we talked about in the, uh, the first episode. Technically, there should be a, some BP157 being created by the stomach going into the intestine. So it's almost as if like nature knew that our intestines are constantly going to be struggling and needing repair. And it created this peptide, which does exactly that. And maybe just as many people's stomachs stop producing enough stomach acid, maybe they stop producing enough BP157, especially if they're lacking the raw ingredients, the thing, the question that you asked about earlier, potentially. And so taking BP157, again, it's really a supplemental one, I would say, because you know, maybe your stomach isn't producing enough, or maybe your circumstances mean that you need more than your stomach is able to produce. And so that's the uh, that's BP157 in a nutshell. Also has anti-inflammatory effects, all the rest of it, but especially for healing. Uh, there is an oral version that's sold, um, but again, most people would say the injectable version is significantly more impactful. But there are some people actually selling the oral version. And sometimes they sell it with the TB500 and call it like a gut repair, gut regeneration formula. Um, I did not have massively noticeable impact from that. But then again, my digestion is way better than it was. It's hard to place it again because uh, because there's that delayed respect when, when it always when it comes to healing. You know, it's uh, it's a little bit tricky to say. Uh, the other thing for healing and recovery and repair, which we talked about before, is the growth hormone peptide. So. Um, generally the recommendation is you have one growth hormone, uh, releasing peptide, one growth hormone releasing hormone. If you take them together, they have a lot more impact than taking them separately. Now at this stage, I could spend ages listing all the benefits of each peptide, but I actually just want to shout out, there's one great resource for this, um, by a guy called Dr. William Seeds, uh, and it's called Peptide Protocols Volume 1. As far as I know, there is no volume two. If you found one, let me know. I'd be great. <laughs> I'd love to hear about it. Put it in the comments on YouTube. Um, yeah, Dr. C, he had his own company. I think he was actually selling BPC-157 and TB-500 um, in oral form, and then he just kind of disappeared, or that company disappeared. I don't know what happened. Who knows? You know, business is not always easy. Um, but he's still the head of a uh, peptide foundation, which is a bunch of medical doctors you know, throughout the world that meet regularly to talk about peptides and what they can do for medicine. Um, and so I don't, you know, as I said, I'm not a doctor. I'm not giving recommendations here about how much you should take or when, what time of day, all that kind of stuff. I would say you can just go to uh, Dr. Seed's book for that. You know, it's available on Amazon. It's cheap. You know, it's uh, it's a great resource. And then, of course, there's only if you're insisting on doing it yourself, much better to go to professional because he's only giving general ideas. And I guess the only reason he can get away with it is because the book is written for doctors, not for people like me and you, <laughs> um, <laughs> even though it's very easy to read. So, uh, you know, always better to seek that professional advice because there could be a million and one reasons why you shouldn't be taking something. On the subject of growth hormone, the most startlingly, massively obvious reason why you don't want to take growth hormone of any kind is if uh, growth hormone stimulating peptides of any kind is if you have any kind of cancer or tumor. Because... Growth hormone makes everything grow. And if you've really got a problem with a growth, it not only can, but probably will make it worse. So this is something to be very cautious about. Now, as we said, are mostly athletes, if they can get away with it, on it, because it helps with recovery so much? Absolutely. Are most of the, the celebrities and the models and all the people who need to look good on it because it helps you to lose fat while keeping muscle or gaining muscle absolutely right so it's actually used quite ubiquitously among 
um, you know, those who are in the performance industries, I would say. But still, it can create a problem um, that is significant. So this is something to be aware of. And again, the growth hormone releasing peptide and hormones are um, tend to be synthetic. So they're not naturally occurring in the body. And so they're more likely to create that immune system response. If you're going to ignore all my advice and do them anyway, um, I would say this is one of the ways that I could tell. I, I, I first came across this through a teacher. I can't remember his name. Kent, I think who said that when he first started taking them, he would get an immune system reaction, like it would go all red. And then after a while, that would stop happening. And that was a sign that his immune system would stop reacting to things. And I would say that is that is the exact thing that happened to me. It's not just that my body got used to it, um, because my body just stopped reacting to things as much in general, like foods that used to bother me, chemicals in the environment, you know, like allergens, all of it. My body just stopped responding to any of it anywhere near as much. So. Uh, but that's like a you know a funny example, I guess, that the immune system goes, oh, okay, even though this is not an endogenous peptide, it's no big deal. We don't have to throw a massive inflammation fit. It's just a signal. It's a, just a biochemical signal, and we'll just send it to the right place, and that's that, rather than like overreacting to it massively. Um, the other thing that's really good for injuries is GHK. But um, in fact, I'll go into that one next. So GHK CU is uh, uh, so CU is the uh, elemental um the latin abbreviation for copper so often called ghk copper so this is uh ghk is basically free amino acids ghk i think it's uh is it glycine or uh glutamine uh histidine and um can't remember the other one uh, <laughs> uh and plus copper and there is a version without copper but it's the one with copper that you really want so what is it it seems to do almost everything but it's especially good for cellular repair now, cells not repairing sufficiently is one of the theories as to what causes aging and what causes premature aging. So this is a really big deal. It also has been indicated to help with DNA repair. And again, DNA not replicating properly, not repairing properly is seen as one of the causes of aging, one of the causes of premature aging. So again, it's a really big deal. So yeah, copper peptide. Um, and then uh, but the reason why most people use it is neither of those things because they're a bit hard to tell. It's because it helps the skin. <laughs> so it helps particularly with the skin, collagen, all the rest of it. And it is the only peptide that um, arguably works better transdermal. So GHKACU is usually sold transdermal. It's usually sold as part of some kind of skin pro product. Although you certainly, you can get the pure version. Um, you can inject it. I tried it once. I had a really bad response. Maybe that's just me. Um, but I think hardly anyone bothers because it actually works really well on the skin. So most people are using the skin to look younger. Um, it gives a kind of glow and all the rest of it. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's a really interesting one. There's also a theory about that. So if we look at anti-aging, you know, talking about growth hormone, this is something where it was, this is still, you know, massively contested, but it was speculated that one of the reasons we age is because of growth hormone deficiency, simply because when they looked at how much growth hormone someone has at the age of 20, 30, 30 40, 50, it kind of massively goes down. It actually goes down even more than some of the sex hormones and stuff. It's like downhill. Well, this is also the case for GHK copper. So if you take the blood of a 20-year-old and the blood of a 40-year-old, even 40, right, let alone 60, the GHK is massively reduced. And... Uh, by was it by a factor of three something like that so say from 60 to 20 i can't remember the exact figures but yeah significantly lower and so there's a lot of speculation that 
actually GHK is one of the key things that keeps us at least looking young and possibly even young on a more deeper, uh, uh, more profound level. And so this is also like interesting to me because thinking about the like uh, myths, like people like Lady Baffrey who used to like bathe in virgin's blood or people would bathe in the blood of animals and stuff like that or rub the blood of animals on themselves. I know this is kind of gross, so I'm not advising to do that, but I'm speculating, <laughs> huh, I wonder if one of the reasons people did that is because they would then absorb the high youthful levels of GHK copper through their skin from that blood from that youthful victim. And so I say that not to recommend that anyone does that, but to say, look, you don't have to do that these days, right? We can synthesize it now in a lab. <laughs> so yes, please. stop using youthful virgin blood. I just wonder, you know, like, you know, I don't know. Baffery is a famous one, but, you know, there are all these stories about ancient aristocrats and all the rest of it. Like, you know, that's where the, the um, Dracula myth came from as well. So I wonder if, you know, all along, if you'd have just gone back to these people and gone, here's some GHK copper in a bottle. See, you don't have to kill anyone. Leave them alone. <laughs> you know, who knows? Uh, <laughs> oh, when you do make me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, next one, talking about looking good, um, probably the most used peptide of all, um, you know, other than insulin, obviously, but more on the, the black market, the people uh, doing it for themselves, is melanotan especially melanotan too. And as the name implies, melanotan makes you tanned. That's why people are into it. Um, there's kind of, you could, you could look it up, there's like news stories of people who, you know, almost seem to change their race. They take, they overdo it so much. And of course that is a bad idea and dangerous. Um, uh, if you take too much melanotan, you can stimulate too much melanin and that can lead to melanomas and skin cancer and stuff like that. So that's a bad idea. However, that's getting a bit ahead of myself. What is it? So <laughs> the thing that actually makes us tan is this thing called melanin, right? And so the amount of melanin we have is controlled by this thing called uh, alpha MSH, melan um, melan oh, melanocyte stimulating hormone. And so this is created in the pituitary. It's related to the stress uh, chemical ACTH. Anyway, it's not one of the well-known ones. We didn't cover it in the hormone episode because it seems to have a bunch of effects that are kind of not really related to each other. But it's interesting, it's often called the Barbie doll peptide. And that's because some of the most interesting impacts of is it makes you more tanned, increases your sex drive, it reduces your hunger, and it also helps to reduce inflammation. Those are like the main things that it's famous for. So, you know, I guess the idea is it makes you tanned, skinny, and always up for sex, right? It's the, the, the idea. Um, does it actually do that? No, but wherever you're at, it'll move you closer to being there. Let's at least say that if you use it, and especially if you use a lot of it. Um, so I personally am not a fan of this because of the skin cancer risks, um, but it absolutely does work. And if you're sensible about it, so uh, if you take melanotan, uh, what you it, it tans you even if you have, it tans you a bit even if you have no contact with sun, but what it really does is it, means that if you have just a little bit of contact with sun, it will tan you way more. So if you use it, you know, usually if you go away for a week, you're not going to get a really deep tan. You know, if you go away for a week in the sun, you're not going to get a really deep tan, right? You're probably going to get burned or, you know, a tan that fades after a couple of weeks. But if you were to use melanotan, say, uh, every day along with being in the sun, it would give you that really deep tan, which would last for a long time. 
Um, and you know, if you can only occasionally get out of the sun because you're usually working during the day or whatever, right? It's the way of maximizing the tanning power of a short amount of sun time. Um, now, in terms of the other benefits, so I'm not a big fan of that. The thing that I actually don't like is the reducing appetite. I found it like really reduced my appetite, made me nauseous. I didn't like it. So I personally wouldn't use it. But if you're someone who wants to reduce your appetite and if you use it in moderation, obviously, especially of a physician overseeing it, it could be great. Um, the other thing I didn't like about it is it is related to that stimulating hormone. So for those who are a bit understimulated in life, it, I think it could actually be good. But for those of us who run high on cortisol like me, it didn't work. It just made me more stimulated. I didn't like it. So, but again, these are personal, as I said, I'm just going to share my personal experience. Um, for those who want some of those benefits without all of them, for instance, people who are not interested in tanning, there are just, there are fragments available, just like there are fragments we talked about earlier of uh, TB4. And so the most well-known ones are KPV. So KPV is just three um, amino acids in a row. And that's like the anti-inflammatory bit of the melanotan peptide. Um, so that basically just reduces inflammation. But probably more interest to more people is PT141. And PT141 is actually uh, licensed as a drug in the United States by the FDA as a treatment for, uh, is it hypogyno syndrome, something like that? Basically, uh, the, the way that these days they turn everything into a disease in order to justify having a drug for it. So women with low sex drive, they've now decided that, that is a disease. And because it's a disease, they can license a drug. And that drug is this. Um, so it helps to increase sex drive, really in men and women, but especially in women. Not being anywhere near as popular as Viagra, because it has that same limitation that a lot of peptides do, which is you have to inject it. So a lot of people not keen on that. Um, but, you know, some people are absolutely willing to do it if uh, if it gives them the result that they want. And I'm sure they're still making a lot of money. Um, Next category, DSIP, DSIP, deep sleep-inducing peptides. The name is really on the tin with that one, um, although it has loads of other benefits with hormonal health and glutathione production and antioxidants and all kinds of interesting stuff. But again, usually basically used by people who will increase their deep sleep. Um, why would you want to increase your deep sleep? You know, because you're not waking up feeling rested is an obvious answer. But a lot of people these days are actually tracking their sleep with various kind of apps and they can see how little deep sleep they're getting. And so if you are tracking that app, a lot of people have found, uh, or one of those apps, a lot of people have found that when you take DSIP, you actually feel like your sleep isn't that restful. I hear that, uh, that from a lot of people. They're like, oh, I seem to wake up in the night more than before. But when they actually look at the app, they go, oh, damn, but you know, I've actually got twice as much deep sleep as I usually do or whatever, right? So it does seem to work very interesting. Some people say it works better in the morning, even though it's deep sleep inducing, all that stuff. You need to work that out of your doctor. Um, dosages also vary widely, you know, what's effective for you. So that's definitely one, as with all of them, that medical supervision would be a good idea for. There's metabolism mitochondrial boosters. So we talked a lot about metabolism in the last episode when we talked about weight loss. So I won't get into that aspect of it again. Check out that episode. I'll talk more about uh, metabolism in terms of energy and just for every cell in your body having the energy it needs to do everything that it needs to do properly. Because if, if it doesn't, that's actually yet another theory about the cause of aging and premature aging is 
uh, a lack of mitochondrial health that your little energy factories in your cells are not able to produce enough energy or they're struggling to produce energy. And so uh, these peptides are relevant for that. So there's MOTC. When I first saw that, I saw it advertised as like exercise in a bottle. I think that's pushing it a little bit. But the other thing is like, if you take the dose that would require, uh, that would meet up to that claim, if it's true at all, it's like $50 a day or something like that. So this is outside the range of what most people are really able to do. I personally have found in much lower, more affordable doses on a regular basis, it helps with uh, energy production. I feel good in it. It seems to have a similar effect to me as PQQ, um, which is a supplement, supplement which uh, also is good for energy production. There's also a humanin, which I've not had much experience with, but that's similar. It's supposed to improve mitochondrial energy production. And I put a couple of non-peptides in this category because I think it's so important. So there's five amino MQ, which um, is not a peptide, but is always sold alongside peptides. So, um, you know, you'd find it in the same place if you're already shopping there, as it were. Um, and this is a thing that, again, basically speeds up metabolism, really popular with athletes, po popular bodybuilders, popular people who want to lose weight, uh, even though, you know, don't expect anything dramatic there without diet and exercise, but it can, you know, help a little bit. Um, even popular those who want to gain muscle, but especially, again, energy. You know, we're talking about a bunch of people who want a lot of energy to do a lot of stuff. So it's a really great energy um, supplement. Yeah, I think I'd class it as a supplement. Uh, and then methylene blue. Methylene blue is really interesting. Um, I'd say it is the best thing of all to support mitochondrial energy production. It's fascinating. It's technically a drug, so you can only buy it, again, as a research chemical, like with most of these. I don't think a doctor would prescribe it to you. But there's a great book which really goes in great detail about why it works, how it works, and all the rest of it. So I will not go into it. I'll just refer you to that. We'll, we'll include that in the links in the description. Um, Brain support. So there's a bunch that are supposed to support the brain. The only ones that I've really found to be great are CMAX and CLANK. Uh, these come from Russia. So they're not in the bioregulator class, but they were developed in Russia. Similar kind of thing, helping with peak performance, I think with athletes, if I remember correctly. So CMAX and CLANK are in some way similar. They're certainly similar in terms of how you take them. With both of them, they actually work best as intranasal sprays. So for that reason, they're quite a good, um, like you know, first peptide to try because you don't have to inject them for them to, to for you to get the most out of them. Uh, they're also fairly cost effective. They're really quite cheap. So CMAX is the stimulating one, and Solank is the calming one in a nutshell. So you might want to do CMAX in the morning, Solank in the evening. They both of them. Uh, are fantastic at helping the brain function better, interestingly, even though one is stimulating and one of them is relaxing. Uh, there's research showing that it helps um, stimulate BDNF and uh, NGF, so basically things that help your brain cells to grow. For you to grow more brain cells, increases neuroplasticity. So yeah, loads of different benefits to help cognition. Um, and I would say immediately noticeable. The other brain peptides that I have come across and tried really don't seem to do anything. Maybe they do long-term, but CMAX, you should immediately feel, ah, I feel clearer if you're feeling a little bit foggy. And ditto, so like you should immediately feel a bit clearer and a bit more relaxed. And then the last one, and I would say this would be the most popular category of all if they really worked well, 
but unfortunately they don't work as well some of these others but it's weight loss so we already talked about that in the weight loss episode just about growth hormone oxytocin semaglutide i won't go over those again uh there is another one called aod 9604 uh which stands for anti-obesity drug um that there's some kind of indications i would say none of these are gonna like make you lose 50 pounds but there is research that shows well none of them except for semaglutide which i talked about last time could help you lose a lot of weight but you know has some significant side effects i don't feel worth it um so aod is more like a marginal difference because it's not going to massively change the amount that you eat which is how semaglutide actually works by massively reducing your appetite but um it may well be worth looking at and it's not exorbitantly expensive unlike the mot c that i talked about earlier uh, some people say it's really worth them but again the people who i see saying it really works are people who exercise a lot and maybe they're just getting older and they can't get rid of some stubborn fat and then it works but if you're you know 300 pounds and you want to lose 100 pounds it's not going to do it you know you need to do more of the stuff we talked about in the last episode what a list <laughs> <laughs> and it's only a start this is only from my personal experience some of my areas of interest there is so much more i mean as Dr. Seeds talks about in his books, there's the whole issue of cell senescence, which is one of the other theories as to aging, and there are peptides that help with that, but they tend to be really expensive, and it's hard to test if it's even working, so that's why I haven't got into that, in case you know a lot of people read the book, because I recommend it, they go, why don't you mention that? That's basically why. No, that's really good. Thank you. Um, going... <laughs> You know, especially this is a, a very big topic, a new topic to me. What are some of the misconceptions about peptides that are out there? So, you know, it's a misconception to say that they're totally safe in many cases, as we talked about. But it's also a misconception to say that they're totally dangerous. Um, as we talked about, the bioregulated ones are pretty much safe no matter what. Even with uh, a lot of the supplemental ones, so long as you are not silly with the dosing, which is usually the issue, right? It's, like with the melanotan, the people who are like way overdoing it and getting skin cancer. Uh, and so long as you are careful with the sourcing, generally, in most cases, they're reasonably safe. But the, the biggest misconception that I see is because they actually work, like often so noticeably and so quickly, it's very easy to get into a mentality of like they're the be all and end all, right? And also because they're new and trendy and all the rest of it. They're not, right? They are um, helpful, but, you know, if you're smoking cigarettes and never get up off the sofa and, you know, spend all day watching TV, right? This is not going to, like, revolutionize your life. So, you know, this is my system, which I'm sure we'll get into eventually, but just when I want to help people, I always run, you know, for them through seven filters first, right? Nutrition. What are you eating? What are you missing more commonly? Toxicity. What is your body struggling to deal with or get rid of? Genetic factors. We talk about that in every episode. Um, lifestyle factors, right? Amount of sleep you're getting, amount of stress you're getting, amount of exercise you're getting, all that good stuff, amount of light you're getting. Hormones. We talked about that. Uh, pathogens and emotional factors. And so if you haven't addressed those core tenets of health, those core principles, um, if there are major holes in that area, uh, and I gave the silly examples, but not that silly, right? I, I was amazed. I was at a, um, uh, event. I'll say who it was. It was Joe Dispenza, right? His week long, um, advanced workshop thing 
with a um, a bunch and you know most people there are people who want to like heal and and get better through meditation and you know uh often they're quite i'd say rational people because Joe Spencer does a lot of scientific research to kind of prove what he's doing compared to you know the average meditation teacher and I'm not judging these people, but I was just curious to observe how many people in the breaks would go outside and smoke. Um, let alone the amount of people who'd go to coffee stores and, you know, drink coffee with sugar. And hmm. and again, I'm not judging because I know we all do what we have to to kind of get through this life and to feel good. But it's just an example of first principles. You know, I would be... And again, you could say that doing those meditations is a way to overcome those addictions, and that's great. But, like, don't forget about the... First principles, that's the key thing. It's so easy to think peptides are going to do it, meditation is going to do it, this diet's going to do it, whatever it might be. But the approach that really works is the holistic one, by which I mean the big, looking at the big picture, looking at everything, and then working out what is the weakest link? What am I missing here? Now, for some people, that may actually be peptides. That's the example that I gave of you know why this is catching a lot with naturopaths um, and, and, and functional medicine doctors and stuff who are trying to help people with really difficult uh conditions where they react to everything and so the thing that was missing in that case was peptides right start adding in enough peptides to calm down the immune system and miracles started happening right and suddenly people started to be able to heal and get better so but look at all the basics first especially as peptides you know can be troublesome as we said a lot of them need to be injected um they can be dangerous they can be expensive right so don't forget about the basic core tenants i would say that's the biggest misconception that, that you know, they're like this exercise in a bottle idea, right? That you can just take this thing. And, you know, maybe you've got a really low sex drive because you, you know, because you were sexually abused when you were young. And does taking PT 141 overcome that? Yes. But does it resolve the core issue? No. You know, and maybe something else will come up instead to, you know, block you still having a healthy, you know, enjoyable sex life. So, yeah, always get down to like the root causes, I would say. And but sometimes the root causes are the lack of peptides. As I said, this is speculated that this is one of the root causes of premature aging. So if it is the root cause, fantastic, because it's fairly easy to do once you get over, you know, certain factors. And you touched a little bit right there on uh, my next question was really, what are the dangers of these peptides? I think you've kind of gone through it as we've <laughs> spoken here. But just do a quick recap yeah. for everybody. Wasted money is a big one, right? So... Uh, we talked about, there is a reason I talked about hormones beforehand. You know, you can go to a doctor and an optimization doctor, as we talked about, and a lot of the time it's thyroid, a lot of the time it's sex hormones, a lot of the time it's adrenal hormones. Um, getting those things in place first usually costs maybe 100 to $200 a month. That's US prices, usually less in pretty much every other country in the world, right? So that is going to, in most cases, have a bigger impact than any peptide. And I say that as a lover of peptide and a user of many, right? That's like one of the most basic things you can do. And I know I just said everything, but if you're the kind of person who doesn't want to change your lifestyle and you just want a doctor to hand you something, get them to hand you probably hormones before they start handing you peptides, <laughs> I guess. Um, and then, yeah, major side effects are possible, right? Even life-threatening ones, especially quality issues. If you get it from someone unreliable, untrustworthy, contaminated, and all the rest of it. So, um, yeah, those are a waste of money and, and danger of uh, side effects and impurities, I'd say. And now, because well, this is definitely a new area, maybe not for some if they've been in it for quite some time, definitely for me, you know, what would you say um, 
within the field of peptides, what what is the future here with with these wonderful little amazing things that can help us so much? <laughs> They're so small they can slot into our DNA. Yeah. Um, well, that's a really interesting question. A lot of the advocates of peptides, you know, use the phrase a lot: the future of medicine. Maybe we'll use that as the episode title, unless uh, we think it's something better. Um, and I think. There's a couple of reasons for this. So first of all, in many ways, they're better than drugs because they're natural or even if they're not perfectly natural, they're um, a replica of something that's natural. So still way more natural than most drugs, right? Now, of course, there's always been that argument that the reason why um, doctors you know, only prescribe drugs rather than you know, looking at things like say nutrients it's because drugs can be patented nutrients can't right this is a, a big distinction and so the cynics the conspiracy theorists among us would say that the reason that you know the western focus is purely on drugs and surgery in, in you know to a vast degree these days also genetic you know stuff but in practice still mainly drugs and surgery is because um you know you can patent drugs and so the interesting thing about peptides is no one would have thought that they were a future of medicine until a few years ago because no matter how well they work, if they're not patentable because they're already existing in your body, then tough luck, right? You're not going to make much money from them and therefore it's not going to be the future of medicine. But what changed recently is that they changed the law to be able to classify a peptide as a drug and therefore register with the FDA and patent it for a specific purpose. And so that's what they did with PT141, for instance, which has some kind of um, brand name that I don't remember off the top of my head. But they basically said, and, and actually, I didn't mention this, but thymosin alpha-1 also is a patented drug for a specific purpose, which is helping people with HIV. And, and there, there, there's several. And so um, thymosin alpha-1 already exists naturally inside your body, inside my body. And so they couldn't patent it just as a thing, but they could say, in order to help people with HIV to boost their immune system, this is a good drug. And we own the patent of it and no one else can copy us. And ditto, you know, PT141, in order to help women, um, they chose women, I guess, because Viagra is already so popular for men, but it really works on both. In order to help women with low sex drive syndrome, whatever they've called it, here is a drug that we've patented. Uh, semaglutide, you know, the weight loss one, right? Again, patented drug. And so because they're able to patent it, and make money out of it, and because they work so well, and because even though I said the side effects and the you know the dangers are not nothing, they tend to be way lower than actual drug drugs that are usually used in medicine. Um, because of all those factors, it may well be the future of medicine. It may well be that in 10 years' time, your doctor is primarily prescribing you peptides. Now, for the cynics among us, are they going to be... Uh, are they going to be diagnosing and prescribing supplemental peptides that you have to keep taking for the rest of your life? Or are they going to be prescribing the bioregulators which help to regenerate your organs so then you don't need anything anymore? We can speculate about that, right? I suspect it will be the supplemental ones. And sure enough, they are the ones that are caught on more in the West. Now, do I blame the big corporations and the, you know, the medical establishment entirely for that? No. Partly it's our own fault because we want the quick fix, Right. We want the quick fix. We don't want to wait for months or years before something gets resolved. We want to feel better straight away. And so it's also us, you know, we're, we're also partly to blame because we want that quick fix. As I said, it's much more compelling to 
I don't know, do PT141 if you have low sex drive rather than take, I don't know, um, Testogen or I can't remember the uh, female equivalent. But, you know, the thing that rebuilds your own sex organs, it's much more compelling to take the thing that makes you feel it now rather than to take the stuff for a year or whatever it takes to regenerate the glands in order for you to do it yourself for most people, right? So, so will our bioregulators going to be the future of medicine in the Western world? Probably not, unless the profit motive is removed from Western medicine. Um, but I feel like the supplemental ones may well become the future of medicine. And I hope so, because they are very effective. They are way safer. Uh, and I hope that that research goes into it. I mean, that's the good thing about patenting, right? Um, the bad thing, as we talked about, is that all the good things that would help you, like lifestyle and nutrition, don't get recommended because you can't patent it. But the good thing about it is that loads of research is done into it and loads of testing and double-blind trials and proving it works and safety and comparing it to other things and all the rest of it. So I'm kind of happy about that patenting thing in a way, um, even though it means they'll jack up the prices a bit because you can still get generic versions of it, right, uh, once the patents run out. And it means that they'll have actually done all the research to show that it works, how it works, you know, what it's good for, what it's not, all, all the rest of it. So I'm kind of, yeah, I'm, I'm not totally against that. Yeah, as long as they keep the price, you know, reasonably affordable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, speaking of which, so Finacent Alpha 1, I believe that the price of that is like over $1,000 a month for HIV patients if it is a, um, if it is a, uh, a prescribed drug. Whereas if you get the... Um, even if you get it from a doctor, but from a compounding pharmacy, it's a lot less. So yeah, they probably will jack out the price. Um, but so long as they still allow us to get our generic versions, I guess that's the best we can hope for. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep that, you know, hold that space for it. So then that brings me to this question. You've said, you know, you've gone quite deeply into this topic. There's a, a lot of peptides that you have dallied with and, and many that you do take. But if you could only choose three, which three would they be and why? <laughs> okay, so yeah, end with a fun question. Um, this is a hard one for me. I just have to think about this because uh, I actually enjoy quite a few of them. You know, and again, I, I, I follow my own advice. I don't put them over lifestyle and nutrition and all the rest of it. But hey, I'm an enthusiast for all this stuff, right? So uh, I'm really into a bunch of them. But yeah, narrowing it down, and I'm not saying this is the best wings for you, Chrissy, or anyone watching, but just for me, I really like oxytocin for reasons I've you know talked about before. Uh, I run low in it personally, or more specifically, I run high on cortisol. So the oxytocin really helps to balance that. Um, it's helped my digestion, it's helped my mood, it's helped my um, psychological issues, I think, to some degree. Um, it's helped um, my weight. Uh, I, I've always been underweight. Like This is literally the first time in my life I've not been underweight by uh, a BMI scale. Um, and I love the way it makes me feel, but it's not addictive. I can happily skip it without an issue. It's also not um what's the word um hab, uh down regulating in the sense that you have to keep using more and more to get the same effect mm. it seems like you can just yeah. keep using the same amount and it has the same effect um and it's safe so oxytocin actually i'll just mention it in the context of what we talked about earlier it's the only anabolic compound that seems to not grow tumors and cancer so we talked about growth hormone if it's increased will uh, you know potentially increase tum tumors and cancer Testosterone 
used to be thought it could increase tumors with cancer. That's generally less in favor now as a theory. But then a lot of women especially don't want to take testosterone. I'm already over my limit of testosterone, so I don't want to have more testosterone. So there's plenty of people who don't want to have more testosterone for whatever reason. Um, so uh, it's good in that regard. And then, you know, estrogen is anabolic, but it also, you know, definitely can lead to cancer, um, cancer increase. So, yeah, to be able to have something that, you know, leads to muscle growth, weight loss, doesn't grow cancer, doesn't grow tumors, doesn't grow anything bad in your body, has no side effects, doesn't downregulate. I love oxytocin. Again, if you know something that is bad about it, I'm all ears, right? Put it in the comments underneath. Um, Thymocin alpha one and thymocin beta four would be the other ones. Like for me, one of the big issues for me was my immune system being um, completely out of whack, being, you know, way too inflammatory, being way too allergic, intolerant, all kinds of stuff. And uh, also having these chronic pathogenic infections going on years and decades. So they've been miraculous for me. And, you know, thymocin beta four for me, because I am still processing lead in my body, getting it out of my bloodstream. It's, it's gone down massively quicker than you'd expect, um, but it's still, you know, a process. So we keep taking it for that reason and to reduce inflammation. And yeah, I just feel so strong. I mean, I haven't had COVID once, you know, is that a coincidence? Maybe. Uh, but everyone I know seems to have had it again and again. Um, so, you know, despite having these chronic health issues, I don't, yeah, I mean, now I say that, I'm probably going to have COVID in a week, right, after declaring it. <laughs> no, don't <laughs> worry, I haven't had it yeah, know, either, so we're in the same boat. We're, we're, yeah, we're good. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> no, you're going to get it, it's weed too. Uh, no. Um, but yeah, you know, like just, yeah, those are kind of acute illnesses. Um, I'm very, very happy to have Phymus Alpha 1 available to help me prevent them in my view let's just put it that way i hope that's not uh i hope that's something that i'm allowed to say yeah we'll find out <laughs> with also um you know this is something else that uh, popped up into my mind because i'm always you know wanting to take a look and, and maybe you have this answer maybe you don't but hopefully you do could somebody test to see whether they are low in peptides or what would that look like yeah, I wish I could. None of the ones that we've talked about, I think, obviously insulin, you can. <laughs> um, but yeah, not easily. These are not, I mean, can you in theory, if you have access to, you know, like a, a friendly biochemist who, <laughs> you know, could do you a favor or something. Just go to yeah, your friendly biochemist are... <laughs> and they'll help you out. <laughs> but these are not commonly... Um, these are not commonly all the tests by doctors either. I don't believe that... I don't believe, again... It, Put it in the comments if you know of any exceptions to this, but I don't believe any medical doctors test any of these uh, peptides before they prescribe them. I think they're always um, based on um, symptoms, right? Uh, symptomologies and, um, uh, yeah, based on that. Oh, I, no, sorry. There's one exception to that, actually, which is IGF-1. So you can absolutely test for IGF-1, and you should test for IGF-1 if you're taking any of the growth hormone peptides. So... Um, because so IGF-1 okay so IGF stands for insulin like growth factor it's basically taking growth hormone the only reason you take growth hormone is because it makes IGF-1 um, so that's the actual thing that has the effect of the, the, the healing and the growth and repair of tissues and all the rest of it and so you can definitely have too little of that but you can also have too much so a lot of um, it's actually not easily available in the UK but in America most of the testing companies 
do offer that often as part of like a longevity package because there are a lot of people, especially in America, I guess, taking growth hormone or growth hormone stimulating peptides. And so it's good to keep an eye on your IGF-1 to make sure it is not becoming excessive for all the reasons we talked about. Other than that, just going for the list, I don't think there's any others that you can um, actually test for easily. No. No, well, thank you. I mean, yeah, maybe in the future, it could be something that does get developed or that does come along. Um, this has been hugely... I would love that. And of yeah, course, it would be great. If it is going to be the future of medicine, it needs to. You know, the yeah. thing about lab testing, of course, is it's all based on demand. And demand is largely based on what doctors are routinely ordering. So if the people predicting that, and I'm, I'm tentatively predicting it, I'm not as um, convinced as some people, but if the people predicting that are right, then absolutely. We, that's, you know, that's, uh, doctors love to test before they give you anything. Um, in fact, that's often where, you know, some, the, the cynics and critics would say that's where there's actually an issue because sometimes, you know, they should be prescribing all based on symptoms rather than lab tests. But, uh, so yeah, if it does become popular, there absolutely will be lab tests for this stuff. And I look forward to the day that I can, you know, test my levels of and alpha one or, uh, BPC one five seven. That'd be great. Well, again, thank you. Like I said, uh, it's hugely informative on this, you know, emerging topic of peptides and, um, you know, really looking forward to delving deeper into it. But I just want to say thank you, Elwin. Thank you for always, you know, being the person not willing to take, there's nothing we can do for an answer because I know that strives you and brings all this information to us. So thanks again. And thank you everyone so much for staying with us and for sharing your time with us. And just remember, if you like what you're listening to, then please remember to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss another episode. And we'll see you again next time. I hope you enjoyed that episode. And if you did, I want to tell you about a way that you can support the podcast while also getting great deals on high quality supplements that Elwin and I personally use. And that's Feel Younger. What I love about Feel Younger is that they have great quality products with minimal fillers at a very affordable price. You can call their customer support team 20 hours a day, seven days a week. And in my experience, they're very helpful and friendly. And the thing I love most of all is the amazing descriptions that Elwin has written about each product category on that topic. And each product has so much education on it that I've actually learned more from reading the descriptions than I have from a lot of articles. So to support the podcast, please use Feel Younger for all your supplement needs. And to let them know we sent you, use promo code RejuvenateMe for 20% off your first order at feelyounger.net. That's 20% off your first order using promo code RejuvenateMe at feelyounger.net.